Good morning, Africa, and welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington. Today is Tuesday, July the 5th, and here are some of the stories we're covering for you this morning. Sudan's Army Chief Abdel Fattah al-Burhan announces that the military will not take part in talks facilitated by the UN and regional blocs, which the country's main civilian factions have boycotted. They said actually the military is the one who wants the partnership and the FSC turned it down. And it makes sense because the FSC lost a lot of credibility in the last partnership. They don't want to lose what credibility they have. They're actually focusing on rebuilding their credibility with the streets. That's why they keep on turning down any partnership. And the Somali government awards licenses to two foreign-owned financial institutions that will be providing corporate banking in the country. This is uh, part of uh, a central bank's effort uh, to galvanize the development of the financial sector of of Somalia. Uh, Given the gaps uh, within, within the current financial sector landscape. In Uganda, the National Teachers Union suspends its strike after a meeting with President Yoweri Museveni. We'll have those stories and more coming up right here on Debrek Africa. Stay tuned. And for our top story, Sudan's army chief Abdel Fattah al-Burhan announced Monday that the army will not take part in talks facilitated by the UN and regional blocs, which the country's main civilian factions had boycotted. The man who orchestrated last year's coup says the decision was made in his words to make room for political and revolutionary forces and other national factions to form a civilian government. Sudanese political analyst Jihad Mashmoon says Burhan may have been worried about a possible coup attempt from junior officers. Mashmoon tells Abiyo's caravan dam that the Sudanese see their military commanders and their junior officers very differently. They see the senior commanders, they're loyal to the former regime. And that's how they got their position. Now, the politicians and the civil forces, they're doing this process of sitting and organizing the sit-in and encouraging civil disobedience in order to encourage junior officers to do their coup. At the same time, when they're negotiating with the military, they're not negotiating for a partnership. Even one of my sources in the FFC told me about this. They said, actually, the military is the one who wants a partnership, and the FFC turned it down. And it makes sense because the FFC lost a lot of credibility in the last partnership. They don't want to lose what credibility they have. They're actually focusing on rebuilding their credibility with the streets. That's why they keep on turning down any partnership. Not much was said by Burhan. So what do you think the announcement means for the people of Sudan? He's trying to de-escalate the whole thing. He's trying to de-escalate uh, any resentment from the junior officers to do a coup against him. So this is a new form of way of stalling for time. That's what I believe. And if you look at it, according to one of my sources in the FFC, it's the military in the last uh, meeting between the U.S. envoy and the Saudi envoy is that it's actually the military who offered the partnership. They wanted the partnership and the FFC leaders, they're the one who turned it down. They're like, no. Spell out FSC because you've referred to it several times. FFC is the Forces of Freedom and Change Central Committee. Now, this uh, is the forces uh, that the military made an agreement with in 2019 to form the transitional government that brought the Hamdu government. Now, the Central Committee, these are the parties who were part of the last Hamdu government uh, until Al-Burhan did the coup of October 25, 2021. 
Now these parties are as follows. It's, if I'm not mistaken, it's the Oma Party, the Sudan Congress Party, uh, the Baxter's factions, and the Unionist, the Unionist Alliance or Gathering. Everyone is engaging with these leaders, uh, with the FFC Central Committee. And even the FFC Central Committee, they have uh, leaders from, for example, the SPLMA, the Sudan People Liberation Army Movement, who are actually part of it. One of the vice, who's the vice head of the movement, is part of it, while the commander of the movement is actually a member of the Sovereign Council. And the member of the Sovereign Council, he actually disagreed with what Burhan said uh, and said to Burhan directly, what you did was a coup and this will result in a coup against you. Could it possibly mean that Sudan's military was so isolated and the economy was in such a deep, fast, you know, downward spiral that the military just felt that they had no more choice left but to kind of cede power to the civilians who've been fighting for it for a very long time? When we speak about the military, uh, we have to uh, divide into two groups here. There is the senior commanders, if they're the ones who got their position by being close to the former regime, including Al Burhan. There's evidence that he's close to the former regime. Now, here, Al Burhan has his personal interest, him and Hamedi, of avoiding prosecution for the role in the Darfur genocide. And also, although they can get out of it and say that we were just following orders, but what is the second point is the emptying of the protest site on the 3rd of June 2019, if everyone recalls collecting, that the military violently disrupted those protest sites. This is Burhan and Hameti. Now, the rest of the commanders, they also have institutional interests of protecting their business interests, the business interests which is under the Sudan defense system. Now, the, this industrial complex has been created by the former regime. They were trying to protect the companies of the former regime by integrating it under the command of the military so there's no civilian oversight against them. That was Jihad Mashmoon, a Sudanese political analyst and an honorary research fellow at the Institute of Arab and Islamic Studies of the University of Exeter, England. He was speaking with my colleague Carol Van Dam. The Somali government has awarded first licenses to two foreign-owned financial institutions that will be providing corporate banking in the country. The government says the two firms, Bank Mizer, an Egyptian bank, and Zirat Katilim, which is owned in Turkey, met the conditions of the framework of the Somali Central Bank. They include the soundness of the institutions, the financial resources, and the amount of business they are going to bring. VOA Somali Service Senior Editor Harun Maruf spoke to Abdurrahman Mohamed Abdullahi, the governor of Somali's Central Bank. This is a part of a Central Bank's effort to galvanize development of the financial sector of, of Somalia. Uh, given the gaps uh, within, within the current financial sector landscape, uh, including lack of correspondent banking abroad, we think the time is ripe now uh, to bring uh, international banks. These two banks have uh, requested to establish uh, branches in, in Somalia for some time, and now we have been assessing their uh, application, and we feel uh, they are adding value uh, to the financial sector of the country. Uh, they will bring international experience and uh, strong capital. They will create employment opportunities. And uh, competition is good, uh, and we believe uh, it is healthy and will create innovation. For these reasons, uh, the central bank has decided to grant licenses for these two banks. 
And how did they qualify? What were the conditions that they have met? They met uh, the conditions uh, and that are uh, in line uh, the the general requirements, the general uh, licensing uh, regulatory framework of the central bank. These are not much different than uh, any other, uh, most of the central bank requirements when it comes to licensing. Uh, we check uh, the soundness of the bank uh, that wants to uh, have a license. Uh, like the ownership structure, the governance structure, their financial resources, and the quality uh, they are bringing to to the market, uh, the, the businesses that they are going to bring, and more importantly, the suitability to the Somali context, uh, the, the needs of of, uh, of the Somali uh, businesses, and they met all, all of the requirements uh, that uh, the central bank have uh, for licensing. Somalia has a weak government. Uh, financial systems have not been operational for a long time. How are you going to monitor them? How are you going to make sure that they do not break the law? Or how are you going to make sure no money laundering takes place? I don't uh, share that characterization, uh, Harun. I think, uh, uh, yes, uh, the, we have we have gaps, but the financial... Uh, we have a robust uh, uh, supervisory uh, uh, capacity at the Central Bank of Somalia. We have uh, recently strengthening our regulatory framework, and, and we uh, have uh, regular uh, monitoring in terms of uh, on-site examination, and we receive also reports from the banks, uh, all the regular outreach and interaction. And we train uh, the banks uh, on the AML-CFT area to uh, prevent illicit transactions being used for these uh, banks. Both existing banks we have, and remember we have 13 commercial banks operating in the country, uh, all of them Somali uh, own it, but of course we conduct uh, uh, the necessary supervisory activity, uh, including on-site examination to ensure compliance with uh, AMLCFT law, for example. But also we check the, the other requirements, including capital and liquidity requirements, accounting and governance requirements what we call financial soundness indicators to ensure uh, financial stability of the sector. So the reality is uh, the financial uh, sector of Somalia is transforming and it's attracting international banks. Uh, the licensing of these two banks is a testimony to the success of the reforms uh, we are currently undertaking. And we are very optimistic uh, that this will continue. That was Somalia's Central Bank Governor Abdurrahman Mohamed Abdullahi speaking from Mogadishu with Harun Marouf of VOA's Somali service. Daybreak Africa continues. A Guinean political leader says Guineans are happy that leaders of the economic community of West African states, ECOWAS, did not impose additional sanctions on the country's military-led government. Guinea, like Mali, was suspended from the regional bloc after military coups last year. The junta, led by Kano Mamadu Dumbaye, had proposed a three-year transition. But at their summit on Sunday in Ghana's capital, Accra, the West African leaders rejected the three-year transitional plan. Instead, they told the junta to come up with a new timetable by the end of July or face economic sanctions. 
Faya Melimano, leader of the Liberal Bloc Party of Guinea, tells viewers James Bati that the junta's proposed transitional program is in Guinea's interest. We are happy that uh, the COVID leaders haven't taken any sanctions against Guinea so far. There are people from Guinea traveling around the world advocating so that uh, sanctions can be put against the people of this country. But the sky hasn't fallen over Guinea. What we've been doing here in Guinea is what is in the interest of all Guineans. This country is a bankrupt country because of corruption, because of uh, human crime, and that military junta actually and power in Guinea is trying to correct all of that. There are people who don't want to hear about it, and they are traveling around the world, and they had promised Guineans that the sky will fall. Thank God, the sky hasn't fallen. So let me ask you, because ECOWAS leaders rejected the three-year transition period proposed by the coup leaders. Has there been any reaction to that? Or are they satisfied with that? So far, what we know is uh, it's just that uh, the leaders of ECOVA didn't hear from all Guineans. Otherwise, here in Guinea, we know what is at stake. Three years, we know it is a, a long time. But in the life of a country, it is nothing. So since now we're talking about... Uh, a new mediator from ECOVAS. I have heard that uh, it is the former president of uh, Benin. When he will listen to all the Guineans, he will know that three years, it is nothing. You said that you think there are people going around in the world wishing that the sky had fallen in Guinea. Who are those people? I won't say the name of anybody, but uh, those who are doing that, will recognize themselves. This country has a history. This country has uh, known a lot of crime, economic crime, blood crime. Today we've been fighting to have a special court put in place to go after all those who have killed any Guinean. And thank God we have a court already in place going after those who presumably have committed economic crime. This country needs that at this period of time. Thank you so much. It's always nice to talk with you. Thank you so much. Faya Milimono is the leader of the Liberal Bloc Party of Guinea. He was speaking from the capital, Conakry, with VOS James Bati. In the northwest of Ethiopia's Afar region, landmines left over the 19-month Tigray conflict are making herders struggle with the record-breaking drought even deadlier. Landmines have killed children, livestock, and are making people afraid to collect water despite the drought. Henry Wilkins reports from Shifra in Ethiopia. The battles between Ethiopian government-aligned troops and Tigrayan forces may have stopped, but herders in western Afar region are left fighting for survival. The record drought in the Horn of Africa that has killed millions of livestock has been made worse by landmines left by combatants. Herder Hassan Arebti Hassan's four-year-old daughter was injured by a landmine, and they're also killing his animals. 
He says landmines are everywhere around here, and many animals have died because they've stepped on them, the landmines. He says goats stand on them and they explode. Landmines and other explosives are so common here that some locals use the wood from their crates as building materials. Nine-year-old Ali Amur says his ten-year-old friend was killed by a landmine while they were herding goats together. He describes how he left the house with his friend to go and tend to the goats. We were just there to take care of the goats, but my friend died, he said matter-of-factly. He says his friend was playing, throwing stones at the landmine. Then he picked it up and threw it to the ground. Ali was also injured. His father says landmines make them all afraid to collect water, despite the drought. He says there's a serious drought here and that it's difficult for the people and the animals. The community doesn't know what to do and he spent a lot of money to buy food for family and animals. We need the landmines removed from the area where we used to live, he says. After speaking with locals, VOA was unable to establish which side in the conflict was responsible for laying the mines. Bekele Gonfar is executive director of a non-profit in Addis Ababa that supports landmine victims. He says people in mined areas of Ethiopia, like Chifra, need help. Number one is the medical uh, treatment. And then uh, they've been provided with psychosocial support, which includes uh, peer counselling, particularly that's what we, our organisation is basically engaged in and operating in. The, the public and uh, the community has to be given mind risk education in order to really keep themselves away from uh, the, the mines. But with the ongoing drought, people in Chifra have little choice but to risk landmines if they want to find food for their animals and collect water for their survival. Henry Wilkins for VOA News, Chifra, Ethiopia. And let's go to East Africa in Uganda, where the National Teachers Union, UNATU, has suspended their industrial action after a meeting with President Yoweri Museveni. The arts and humanities teachers had been on strike for almost a month over what they say were discriminatory salary increments that only benefited science teachers. The government's recent budget proposed a 300% increase for science teachers while maintaining the salary rates for arts and primary teachers. Ugandan legislator Asha Wilson Owere is the chairman general of the National Organization of Trade Unions. He tells me that unlike previous negotiations with government authorities, there was a breakthrough this time because the president created a conducive environment for talks with the teachers and their representatives. Yeah, after discussing with His Excellency the President and uh, being given a good forum, because this time there was no tension among the, when they were negotiating, the President created a good environment for negotiations and he listened to the teachers after he had sent the Vice President to talk to the teachers and the, the Vice President took him a report whereby he accepted today to meet the teachers with the leaders of the National Organization of Trade Unions, the members of parliament representing workers, Minister of Public Service, the Minister of Education, and the President. So, Mr. Oweri, give us a little understanding on how this meeting with the President went. You know, last week the teachers' union met with the Vice President. How did you make your case to the President this time around? So the meeting centered only mainly enhancement of uh, salary increment and uh, disparity in the 
uh, bridging the gap between science teachers and art teachers. And the president ex explained that uh, he has priority to give science teachers and uh, he's thinking about giving other teachers also money, but he okay. did not specify the time. And what were the demands made during the meeting? The teachers were demanding for implementation of the collective bargaining agreement, which was signed in, in, in 2018 between the government and its workers under the public service unions and the, the negotiation machinery, which negotiates government and workers who work for government. And that is the collective bargaining agreement, which was signed by government and the workers. And it was supposed to be for five years. And they anticipated that by now, the lowest person would be getting uh, around 1.8 or 1.7 million, the lowest. And then the highest would be getting 10 or 12 million. And how confident are you that the government will actually follow through with their promises based on previous engagements uh, over the years with the president? No, the previous uh, history has been the implementation of uh, salary increment in the phases because the, 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 I, I remember the last negotiation we held with the, with the president and the, the workers, they were given 50%. By then, there was no money, but the, it was scattered into three phases. There was a problem of uh, one year was not uh, implemented. It, they came back and uh, made an appointment, uh, an agreement, and then they added 4%, which uh, became 14%. So that one was paid, and also they have ever given the uh, teachers money for the circle, and their circle is doing very well. But what brought problem this time is uh, around when they started implementing, uh, they started giving salary enhancement selectively. That was Ugandan legislator Asha Wilson Owere. He's also the chairman general of the National Organization of Trade Unions. I reached him in Kampala, Uganda. The Chinese government has finished construction of Zimbabwe's new parliament building outside the capital at a cost of about $200 million. While Zimbabwe's government is happy, critics are concerned about electronic bagging and China's growing influence. Columbus Mavunga reports from Mount Hampton in Zimbabwe. China will soon hand over a new six-story parliament building to the government of Zimbabwe's president, Emerson Munangagwam. Located about an hour's drive from the capital, Harare, China provided a $200 million grant for the building built by a Shanghai-based government-owned company. Kai Libo, the project manager for Shanghai Construction Group, dismissed security concerns about the new building, including worries it might be bugged for spying purposes. Oh. <laughs> we are, you know that Zimbabwe and China are all with uh, friends. As you know that a friend will not do such kind of things to, to your friend. The Zimbabwe authorities, the government of Zimbabwe, will authorize the security department for a special examination for this and then give the certificate. We are friends. We have no interest to do that. So everything is clear. 
China has been accused of bugging the Africa Union headquarters in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, a claim that Beijing has denied. Columbus Mavungam for VOA News, Mount Hamden, Zimbabwe. And that's it for this edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for spending this morning with us. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Instagram. We are also on Twitter. Until next time, I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington wishing you a great week ahead, Africa. Hey, sports fans, brighten your day by tuning in to the sunny side of sports Monday through Friday at 1630 and 1830 UTC. Join us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash VOA Sunny and on Twitter at VOA Sunny Sports. Or check out the blog at blogs.voanews.com forward slash sunny. It's the sunny side of sports right here on The Voice of America.